I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Brett Thomas is the co-founder and managing partner of Cavu Venture Partners, a leading venture capital firm investing in better-for-you food and beverage brands, as well as companies across the health and wellness space. Prior to co-founding Cavu in 2015, Brett was the founder of Thematic Capital Partners. In this episode, he discusses the evolving definition of health and how it's broadening the firm's thesis, as well as the art, science, and luck behind investments in Beyond Meat, Vital Proteins, Hims, and Thrive Market. In addition to all of that, he talks about Cavu's role in a new $225 million SPAC targeting the health and wellness space. Enjoy. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Brett, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this one, but I want to start not with what you're doing today, but kind of dive back in, into history a little bit. And I know you were a competitive athlete growing up, played Division One sports. What was the drive for you early on? Uh, drive in terms of playing sports or just kind of- Yeah, in, I'm, I'm thinking all- about that overall mentality, right? Like to, to reach Division One athletics, there, there must have been something in you. I'm just wondering what that was at an early age. Yeah, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. Um, Listen, I, I'm six foot five. I was always the the tallest kid in all of my classes. Um, you know, in every soccer photo, I always wanted to be the one holding the ball like in front. And unfortunately, I was always told, you know, you got to be, you know, in the back row uh, uh, because you're so tall. But um, I was I was naturally athletic as a kid. Um, I loved sports growing up. You know, I was the youngest uh, child in the family, and my older brother and older sister played sports. So I think as it goes, you know, the youngest just kind of like follows suit. Um, and I found success early on in sports and, um, it was a great confidence builder for me. Um, you know, I think academically earlier on, um, you know, I was a decent student. Okay. But, um, I definitely found my confidence and sense of worth, um, on the athletic fields. And, you know, it's funny, I, I reflect back on lessons learned through sports. Um, you know, I, I played tennis competitively in, in, in college division one, but, ultimately I chose tennis because it was my worst sport. And I kind of think back on that decision today, uh, with kind of some what ifs in my mind, uh, because I was a better football player. I was better at swimming. I was better at all the other sports, but for some reason, when I put a tennis racket in my hand, uh, it was, I was the most clumsy person you've ever seen. And it was just the coordination and 
I, it just didn't make sense to me because other sports came so easy and I looked more of a natural where I looked like I was the worst tennis player on the court. And I think um, that wanting to get better uh, was something that was frustrating to me um, earlier on. And I literally, you know, spent, you know, a good chunk of my childhood focusing on trying to get better. Um, and, you know, I got to division one, I had higher hopes, obviously. Um, but I think that drive, um, I think it probably starred because I had some ability in sports. It came a little bit easier to me, maybe than others at that age. Uh, but then the lessons you learn and is, you know, um, working within a team, setting goals, short-term, medium-term, long-term, and starting to see like the practice and the dedication that's required in order to be better uh, was just, those are lessons that I, I still take today and, uh, and apply not only in, in you know, the, the business world, but also as a parent with my children and wanting them to be a part of team sports and really experience that, those interactions. Wow, that, that mindset is ridiculously interesting. I feel like I got a little chills there because most hyper-competitive people, like they want to strive for, for their best, but then tackling your worst sport, I mean, that's, that's a pretty unique angle. So I, I think we're kind of tapping into here kind of what's made you successful thus far to date. I, I am wondering, playing Division One athletics, of course, you're getting repetitions, practice, things like that. Is there anything you do like that now that we can view as like mental or on-job training, similar to practicing your forehand every single day? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We, um, I think humans have a, a tendency to focus on their strengths. Um, and I actually did that as well. We talk about use the tennis analogy. I had a great forehand. Uh, my backhand wasn't so good. So instead of spending more and more time focusing on that particular weakness, what did I do? I developed uh, a forehand where I'd run around most of my backhands and I was good. I got good at it. Um, but I think the, the, the ultimate overlying theme is um, to be a division one athlete or to do anything that you're passionate about and to do it at a high level. Um, you have to have that kind of discipline. And I think for me now uh, where, where time has gotten a lot more challenging, I'm a uh, parent with three children married and um, all the, the demands of balancing work life. Um, I think you have to have that discipline of um, staying in a pattern um, in terms of um, consistency. And for me, the biggest thing is just exercising in the morning. You know, I, I wake up at 4.45, 5 a.m. every day. Um, and, you know, I, I'm lucky living in Los Angeles. I'm able to, to, to do stuff at home um, or we can go outside. It's beautiful, obviously, for a run or, or take advantage of the hikes. But um, I'm out there probably every day, Monday through Friday at least, you know, 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. is kind of my time where, the kids mostly aren't up. Some days they will be, um, but I can I can go downstairs and get that hour of um, just focus and um, kind of focusing on myself. Um, and I don't answer emails because you know you get sucked into the time difference between East Coast and West Coast, and oh, there's stuff to you know. And I try to put my phone down and I just focus on myself for that 45 minutes an hour every day, and that balances me so well in terms of any stress that might be going on. Obviously, endorphins happen, and you you just come up feeling refreshed, ready to go, and start your day. Um, and I find if I do, if I am carrying stress, that's a great way for me to 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 relieve it, and you know, start the day excited, positive. I mean, my wife always laughs at me. I don't drink coffee, and so I I literally start the day happy and and ready to go. I fade as the day goes along, and uh, I've started drinking matcha, but um, I, I definitely start the day uh, off. Um, 
um, you know, in, in a manner of ready to go. You mentioned the, the no coffee, staying positive throughout the day. I mean, with, with what you do at Kavu, I mean, you guys are at the forefront of, of health, wellness, everything like that. And, and this doesn't have to be a product or workout routine or anything like that. I'm just wondering, is are there things that you do that you think just so exceedingly impact your positive mindset and just your overall health? You know, I, I think exercise is a big, a big piece of that. Um, you know, when I was in my twenties and, and living in New York city and, and working for a hedge fund and, and, you know, it was a very unhealthy lifestyle. And, you know, you, you think back, I'm, I'm 41 now. Um, and when I was in my twenties, um, you know, what you're putting in your body, uh, the food, the, the hours you're keeping, um, obviously you're young, single, new to New York. You want to go out and experience that social aspect. Um, it was just a very, uh, took a heavy toll, I think. On, and I think it happens still to this day in terms of the, the physical and mental toll it takes. And I think it hasn't been till recently, um, mentally, um, the impact, right? We, we take physicals every year for our physical health to make sure that everything is, is working okay and that there's no uh, warning signs or anything wrong. Um, and then we haven't spent a ton of time on the, on the mental aspect of it. And then what the, I think one of the best things to come out of COVID, there's been a lot of bad things that have come out of COVID. One of the best things is just the focus and removing the, the taboo away from speaking about mental health um, and making it a focus, making it a priority. Um, and so I think that combination of spending time and, and being a little bit selfish and taking your time to focus on you, whether it's through exercise, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's socializing, whether it's taking a day off in a, in a mental day, um, just to say, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna look at my phone. I'm gonna clear my calendar um, and just kind of go do something that, you know, get out of the house and go enjoy life or spend time with your your, your children. Um, I think you need those those interruptions here and there to kind of break it up because you, you and I, it happened to me when I was young and it still happens to this day a little bit where you get in these, these grinding um, periods and it just it's grind, grind, grind. Um, and a lot of people who've played sports, who, who've worked in banking, they're, they're just, it becomes part of their everyday life. And ultimately, if you're not taking care of yourself, um, then it's going to catch up to you really quickly. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was one of those in my, in my 20s, just grind, grind, grind. And then you, you've reached that breaking point. And then all of a sudden you, you realize life works in oscillation. You need those stress recovery periods. So so building those in, yeah. I mean, I'm in complete agreement with you there. Uh, I am wondering because I feel like one of your really unique skills is just kind of overall, let's, let's call it pattern recognition and, and sensing trends. So what is your information diet like that you can kind of just encapsulate all of this and then really find those white spaces where others aren't seeing it? I get that question a lot. And it's funny. I grew up as a young boy. My, my grandfather, who's a huge role model in my life, um, he was a, a bathtub chemist, right? He came over from Russia and he was wa- watching a car get cleaned. And he noticed a bunch of um, grease on the floor and, and the car wasn't getting clean. And so he went home, fooled around in his bathtub and created auto polish products. And, you know, I think, um, you know, he was, you know, I think he retired when he was 35 years old. Now he didn't make a ton of money, but you know, he lived, he lived conservatively and, you know, back then you could put your money in T bills and live off the interest. And, you know, this is Cleveland, Ohio. So the cost of living isn't, isn't that high. Um, but I think, um, I spent hours and hours in a, in grocery stores, um, in targets and Kmart's and, my grandfather um, would walk up and down those aisles with me and he'd stop at a product here and there and be like, isn't this interesting? You see, every good invention comes from someone's problem. 
And then we look at the bottom, like look at the packaging. People judge a book by its cover. And so it was these early kind of lessons that kind of, you know, were taught to me at a very young age where, um, you know, if you have a product and has great packaging, it's going to drive trial. Uh, if the product is not great, well, then you're not going to have a customer repeat business and you'll have a very difficult time. But if you have an amazing uh, product in, inside that packaging, then that customer is, and has a good experience, they're probably going to become a customer again. And, and, and that, that chain kind of goes on. Conversely, you'll see amazing products with horrible packagings. And we, we equate it to like the, the car. It's, it's having a, a Ford Ferrari, right? It may look like a Ford on the outside and have a Ferrari engine, but the consumer will never or probably won't come into contact with that product as much and understand like what's really inside that if it has bad packaging or it doesn't draw you in. Where conversely, you have amazing packaging and, and an outward experience, but then what's inside the package is actually reversed and it's actually a Ford engine and not a Ferrari engine. And so um, I think very early on, um, it was it was drilled into my head. I think, um, you know, I found myself in New York City getting on a plane, flying to the West Coast a lot when we started Kabu. Um, you know, I think I counted it at one point in a, in a four-month period. I think I had 13 trips uh, to kind of the Los Angeles, San Francisco area. Um, and a lot of these trends, not all of them, but some of them um, have been have historically started on, on the West Coast. And you take kombucha. I mean, kombucha has been out and, you know, been around for a long, long time. But, you know, it was, if you'd come to Los Angeles, you would see kombucha in a lot of places on tap and things like that, where in the Northeast or places like New York City, right, which is one of the most sophisticated, affluent cities in the world, wasn't there yet. And so the challenging part is what is what's what's fad versus a trend? What can actually um, travel outside of this bubble of, you know, Los Angeles, Southern California, kind of California in general, the West Coast and go more mainstream? And that that's the harder challenge. Um, but I think from an information uh, survey to, to kind of answer your question and to land the plane, um, I read a lot. And when I was in school, if you told my 20-year-old self that I would be reading two to three hours a day, um, I would have probably laughed and said, no way. And I find myself reading um, a ton. And um, you have to kind of read, right? As the world's evolving, you have to evolve as well. Um, and I've, I, I've taken great joy and great learning and reading. And I think reading has been one of my biggest idea generations in terms of thinking through different things, um, learning from previous people's stories and examples um, and how they did things or a way to lead an organization or how to build a culture. Um, you know, I, I've read all those books and they, I find it very helpful. But then you also look at social media now. Social media is a great place where through Twitter, you see, now I don't participate in the conversations. I'm more of the, you know, the social media, I guess, uh, uh, stalker and not actual uh, contributor. But you you learn through these different discussions on on Twitter in terms of you know human performance is a category where where we've evolved into and looking at um, to see uh, actual customers or actual um, people going back and forth having debates um, about it. It just it it drives um, conversation. Um, you know you look at social media, the Instagrams and the TikToks. Um, seeing new products being advertised there and, and it, they make it so easy to trial now, right? You just, you know, you scroll up, you, have, you hit Apple Pay and you've got it in your house in three days. So it's a lot easier now to, I think, discover 
um, and experience um, new products, new trends real time. Um, the hard part is there's a lot more noise in the market. So you've got to really get through that clutter and, and just to try to find that gem or what we believe to be that next gem. Yeah, when, when you can start filtering that signal from the noise uh, and, and you refine that a little bit on Twitter, that, that's incredibly helpful. The thing I love that you bring up about Twitter is not only do you get to see the idea out, similar like what you'd be reading in the book, but then you actually get to see thought leaders in the same space kind of debate back and forth. So you get varying opinions here. And then you can also see that people lesser in, in terms of like overall knowledge around that they put their input too, which would be a real consumer. So yeah, that's that's a beautiful medium. If you use that correctly, uh, I am intrigued. I'm a huge reader as well. Any books that you've gone back to or you think have just really shaped who you've become? You know, I've actually never gone back to a book. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I will, and it's fine. I never actually thought about this. And that's why uh, I love chatting with you here. Um, it drives, it kind of drives the thinking. Um I, I take notes in books, so I will refer uh, back to to notes. Um, you know, a lot of books that I focused on, um, you know, tend to be more on nonfiction. Um, you know, I I want to hear other people's stories because no path is the same. Um, but there there are common elements to people, and if you think about, well, I want to read about the the people who've you know who've made it type of thing, right? And and um, and that's a journey, right? I don't think you ever fully make it. It's like it's a, the ever um, the journey that kind of, kind of keeps on going, right? Where every day you're trying to be a little bit better. And um, I think it's those books where you you have people that you know. It's 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 shoe dog, right? It's the Phil Knight story and how he built Nike and how many bumps there were in the road. And and even you look at Stephen Schwartzman's book, right? And Blackstone and uh, and you just see the mindset and and you think um, there was one thing that caught my attention. It's you know, we try to do everything. Um, there's there's got to be an intensity and a speed. And, um, you know, there, there was a part in when Stephen Schwartzman was talking in his um, biography about um, uh, how they were raising the first Blackstone fund. And there was a, a, a speed to kind of get it done and, and to not wait an extra few days or just let's go as fast as we can to do this fundraise. And they closed their first fund on a Friday. And I believe it was on a Monday. It was um, the '87 stock market crash in October. Um, and you know, he he says in the book, I don't think Blackstone if would be what it was today if we waited an extra day. And that's something that I think back on. And there's always those expressions: strike while the iron's hot, and you get that momentum, and time kills deals. It's so true, um, and it's hard sometimes because you need to be thoughtful. Um, you don't want to rush just to the, for the sake of rushing, but you always have to move with a speed of, we got to get this done yesterday. Um, and that, that can be hard sometimes, but I think it's something that I really, that really stuck out with me when I read that, that kind of, it was a paragraph or two describing this, this time in his life. And you think about that one day and there's luck involved and who would have known that, you know, that, that event was coming, you wouldn't have, but just how like, how life would have changed if, you know, they didn't get that fundraise done and they waited a week or they, they said, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll wait the weekend and we'll finish up the following week. And, you know, a firm like that, that's been super successful, um, may not exist in the same form it exists today. So it, it's, it's crazy. You know, when you read stories like that and, and all the twists and turns and all the turbulence that comes along and, you know, that's kind of how with Kavu when we started Kavu, the name, um, you know, Kavu is a, is a pilot's term. It's the perfect flying conditions. It stands for a ceiling and visibility unlimited. So it's like the perfect flying conditions, the perfect day. And so our whole goal 
when we started Kavu was to kind of make those skies a little bit clearer, a little less turbulent for entrepreneurs because it is a rocky journey to say the least. And there's a lot of highs and there's definitely a lot of lows. And I think staying even keeled, not getting too high, but not getting too low is something that, you know, it's hard to do sometimes, but it's something that through experience we've gotten better at and try to, um, when we work with our partners, you know, try to, you know, make sure that they realize they're on a journey and that's the best part of it. Yeah, you bring up turbulence. And I think that something that's very apparent in the majority of these biographies is just how turbulent and the ups and downs uh, these entrepreneurs go through. Yeah, Schwartzman book, I loved. I, I feel like you don't hear about that enough. He's got some great one-liners. You're talking about speed with him. I, I loved his stories uh, with high school track and, and then running in college where he'd run to throw up every single day. You talk about drive and work ethic. That's great. You were bringing up a point. Uh, this is one of the things uh, I try. I struggle with a lot. And I'm trying to think about this in terms of being able to be at a high enough level. So I picture this as zooming in and zooming out, right? You have to have a 30,000 foot pilot view, but then also dive into the weeds. How do you do that with, with all the companies that, that you're helping out? It's, it's hard. Um, it's, I think early on when we had a, a few companies, it was a lot easier, right? I would know everything about, not everything, but I would, I would know most of the material information about every single company. But then as we start to expand, um, you really have to balance you know, getting out of the forest and kind of pick your head up a little bit and, and, and rise above. Um, Cause you can get in a mode of just kind of head down, grinding it out, focusing in the, being in the trenches. Um, and I think a good thing, um, my partner and I do Rohan Oza um, quite a bit and other um, uh, members in our, in our team is we kind of take a step back at least quarterly where we don't schedule any meetings or calls and we kind of get a perspective um, just in terms of, okay, like state of the business, like what's working, what's not working, um, learning from mistakes. You know, I think taking a step back, you need to do it multiple times a year. And we actually probably should even do it a little bit more. Um, but I find it it's healthy because you pick your head up a little bit and there's some stuff that's so obvious that you or we may be missing or we shouldn't be doing that we're doing and, and vice versa. Um Picking that head up and stepping back and, and getting out of the business people talk about for a period of time is really helpful, whether it's a retreat um, or even just a day or two of, hey, we're just not going to be in the same pattern you are of your daily life. It's just, let's disrupt it a little bit. Let's take a step back and let's kind of, you know, take a different, see if we have a different perspective when we are not, you know, buried in, in work and our typical day. Talking about the, these high-level perspectives, you are talking about your grandfather a few minutes ago. He gave you an excellent piece of advice uh, of what you need to think through by the time you're 30. I would love for you to share this story because I think this is really helpful. Yeah, so uh, I used to, he, he was a man of, um, well, listen, he retired at 35, and so he had a lot of free time. And um, so, you know, we would go on a lot of adventures together. And, and one of the things in the fall in Northeast Ohio is mushroom picking. Uh, so again, when I tell people I used to go mushroom picking in the, in the forest of my grandfather, they, they look at me like I'm crazy, but, um, you know, it was one of those long trips, um, you know, and gosh, I'm, I'm probably nine years old and it's crazy that you can take something when you're nine as a child and it, it just still resonates with you. And his, his advice was, and I think it goes back to how do you grind? How do you stay in, you know, just that intensity of an athlete? I, I think it all comes down to passion. And, um, my grandfather told me by the time you turn 30, if you don't know, if you, if you're working at a job 
and you're not passionate about it, um, you need to quit your job immediately and go out and pursue your passion. And his argument on that was when you become 40 years of age and you're married and have kids and mortgages and all these other responsibilities, you're not just going to wake up one morning and say, oh, um, to your spouse, oh, I think I want to quit my job today to go follow my passion. It just, it just, it doesn't happen. And so I think the longer you stay in a job, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's that analogy of um, it's your, your work has to be your passion at some point. And, you know, I found myself in my twenties um, working in a hedge fund. You know, I didn't know what a hedge fund was. I, you know, it was like that hot job out of college when, you know, back in the nineties, it was like consulting and, and then it was, you know, tech in the late nineties before the bubble burst. And then it was like, and then hedge funds. And I barely knew what a hedge fund was. And I was lucky to, to go to a, to a place with, uh, that was founded by two amazing individuals, a guy named Adam Weiss and James Crichton. And uh, I was the fifth, sixth employee there. And we were young. I mean, we had boxes for furniture to put things on. And, you know, I found myself making probably more money at a younger age than I ever thought I could make, but I wasn't happy. Um, I, I had gained weight. Um, I was probably, you know, borderline depressed a little bit. Um, it's a talking about the biggest grind ever. Uh, working at a hedge fund from, you know, those five or six years that I did it um, was probably the biggest grind of my life. And that's coming from someone who grew up, you know, training before school, getting up at 4.45 in the morning and, you know, going and, and working out before school and then going to school and then working out after. And, you know, like that was the, and I also went to a tennis academy. I went to a place called Nick Bolteri Tennis Academy in eighth grade and, you know, played tennis from, you know, 12 to five and conditioned for an hour after. That was the biggest mental grind uh, of my life. And I remember the financial crisis was happening. So this is, you know, two, 2009. And my birthday was in May. And I remember really thinking about what my grandfather told me. It came back to my mind multiple times in my life. And I remember sitting there and I had just um, uh, gotten engaged and, um, um, and then was on the way to get married. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to go follow my passion. And literally, this was in May of 2009 or April of 2009, um, I, I talked with my, my wife and she said, go for it because you always regret it if you don't, which is true. And it's okay to make mistakes in life. It's just my whole thing is no regrets. If you think you're going to wake up in 10 years from now and say, do you wish you did that? Um, and you say, yes, I regret that. I didn't, I didn't go for that or take that chance. Like that's the things I'm worried about. Not failure. Failure is good. That's how you learn. But uh, so I literally went in and, and, and said, I'm, I'm leaving. I forgot about the two week notice part. So uh, I actually was a week late, but close enough. And so I found myself, you know, 30 years old in one week um, saying, okay, now what? And I was lucky that I saved a little bit of money. So I had, you know, some cushion, but it wasn't an unlimited cushion forever. And so um, my passion was consumer brands. Uh, I, in a hedge fund or in the financial world, it's a scorecard every day. Um, when you're trading, it's, it's you make money or lose money. It's on paper and it feels very numb and you're not really building anything tangible. And yes, you're building an organization and a team and you're helping provide jobs and, 
Um, but just there wasn't anything tangible that you can build. And so um, I really wanted to be involved with consumer products. Um, and I didn't identify then about kind of the health and wellness craze. Um, so I left in 2009, uh, started looking at consumer brands, investing in some of them. And my whole goal was to make mistakes in my own money so that at some point in time when I was ready to take other people's money, I had that pattern recognition. I had you know, put in five or six years of experience and mistakes and learnings so that when I took money from other people, I was in a good spot where I could uh, manage that in a, in a manner which they deserve and with the results that they deserve. And so um, it was then I became a parent in 2010 for the first time. And my aha moment was actually my wife. I give her, Hillary, my wife, a lot of credit because when our um, first child was born and um, we, the way we looked at the packaging and I give her most of the credit for this, probably all of it actually. And not only what we put in his body, but on his body, whether it was shampoos and lotions and the type of diapers, I was like, wow, this is the new millennial mom. This is not, you know, I grew up in the Midwest on a diet of, I always joke, soda and chips and mac and cheese. And it wasn't my parents' fault. Like we grew up in Ohio. Food was cheap, accessible, um, and efficient. It was quick. And so, you know, seeing how that had changed, that perspective between um, how my parents fed me and our and our family versus what my wife kind of instilled early on was my eye-opening moment of there is a massive health and wellness secular tailwind that's coming at, to start in this country. And the premise was, if you give someone a chance to upgrade their life in some way, whether it's improve their sleep, improve their diet, look better, feel better, eat better, they're going to take it. Um, but there's education, there's a bunch of gaps. So for me, that was my aha moment into focusing on particularly health and wellness, um, which matched up with my passion for consumer brands. You mentioned the passion, and then you were even talking earlier about the passion you had even for tennis. When you're grinding out in something you're so passionate, almost like the, those hard times, they, they don't seem as difficult. It's almost this fun challenge to overcome. And and I love that alignment. When you can align that passion, that hard work and the resilience, that really comes with it. I, I am wondering now, though, like I view this as games inside of the game. And with what you're doing now, like what little thing do you get the most passion around within what you do day to day that most people probably would never even think about, but just like lights you up inside? I think the the passion connecting it with to your point hard work um it doesn't feel like hard work. You know, I'm working harder now um than I've ever worked in my life. And yeah, it feels like it sometimes, but I'm having fun. I'm enjoying it. I love it. Um for me, it's not when you make money. And I know money gives optionality and, and, and people always say, and, and being driven by money is the wrong thing. When I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I was like, oh, I'll go into finance because you can make money and money allows you to, to have options. And that's where I'll start. Um, it's for me, it's the journey. And it's the journey of discovering a new product, a new brand, an entrepreneur that you've met that you just sit in awe and being like, how in the world did they come up with this? Like, this is incredible. Um, and the reason I got into this business too is I'm not clever enough or smart enough to start one of these companies on my own. Meaning having that idea that's just like amazing, original, like way where the puck's going. 
my my favorite quote is 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 the old Wayne Gretzky quote of skate to where the puck's going, not to not where it's at now. And um, for me, it's that initial kind of spark meeting where you meet an entrepreneur or, or founder that you have no idea what the meeting's going to be like or how amazing their product may or may not be, and you walk away just inspired about wow. And I want to be, and we want to be a small part on that journey. So if we can help in any way. I want to be a part of that because you're actually building something tangible that's that's actually changing lives. And I, I I look back on what I was doing before and the scorecard. You oh you lost my tight okay and you went home, or you made my tight great. But to actually be a part of building something day by day that's actually going to be tangible. Um, that's the thing with food and beverage, especially where we started in coffee. Like you know you can take a product or a brand and you can see people drinking it and seeing someone drink one of our products. Um, that we are involved in and we backed a, a great founder or we start ourselves. It's just really cool when you see someone on the street or a store grab one of those brands and experiences it itself. For me, that's where I get my kicks. It's not when, you know, oh, great, the, the, the brand sold and people made money and you're happy, obviously, and you're, you're happy for the founder and you're happy as a firm that we, you know, we, we, we went from here to here and here's the outcome. But as I look back, I always get a little sad because, um, that journey is kind of over and that is the best part. And every founder I talk to, I know it's hard. Uh, I know it doesn't seem that way now, but you're going to look back and you're going to miss this time, um, with all these challenges and, you know, this is on fire. That's on fire. Um, that, that type, that journey is what makes it special. And I, and you see it a lot, a lot of founders who are successful and they, they have a big exit and they make a lot of money they get bored really quickly. You know, you, okay, they buy their house, they buy their car. Uh, now what? It's not as what it's cracked up to be. And I think um, they always look, they miss it. They're like, ah, oh, I wish I didn't sell or I wish I held on to it a little longer. That's an, that's something that for me, that journey is is the best part of what I get to do every day. Yeah, you, you bring up really interesting points there. One of those cool things, I mean, like when the hair on your back stands up, when, when one of those entrepreneurs walks in and it's just like, wow, the insight they have comboed with just like their drive, tenacity, smarts, everything like that. And then you're talking about kind of that evolution, that progression. And then all of a sudden that idea comes to fruition, product in yep. hand of other people. It's like, that's a remarkable, cool journey. Something you were saying a second ago, I, I would love to know what this looks like. This was, I, I don't know specifically, this was 2010 with the first child. You said you were kind of catching on to a tailwind. When mm-hmm. you see a tailwind, what happens next? Like, what are you diving into to understand it better? Well, let's let's use a, a real life example. Um, well, try to see which one's better. Um, okay, uh, we'll use carbonated soft drinks. So, um, I haven't grown up in the Midwest. You know, I used to have Coke, Pepsi in my refrigerator, and it wasn't uncommon any time of the day I could just grab one. And now other households were more strict on things like that. But for the most part, we didn't know how bad drinking, you know, carbonated soft drink loaded with sugar was. And so uh, I found myself uh, middle-aged um, uh, drinking one Coke a day, maybe two. And the problem was I just wanted that taste. And any other alternatives, I really couldn't, um, in my mind, like just they weren't good enough for me. I, my, my pal didn't love it. And then I discovered buy. And my business partner, Rohan, um, invested in by very early on. And then that's, we met and we invested together more. Um, but when I tried my first buy, uh, I was blown away. The fact that it had so much flavor, five calories, one gram of sugar, naturally sweetened and tastes great. And for me, that was the game changer because 
um, I said, okay, I'm not the only person that wants to kind of remove themselves from drinking carbonated soft drinks. There's others out there. I know it. And maybe they're not right now, but in a year or two or three, more and more information is going to come out. And it's true. Look at sugar is, sugar is not fake news. I don't think, you know, there is misconceptions about different diets and keto and this and that, whether they're healthy for you or not. One thing I could probably say with pretty certainty is that there's never going to be a study that comes out and says you should have more sugar. I just don't think it's going to happen. And so um, knowing that that was kind of where like public sugar is going to be public enemy number one at some point, and knowing that liquid is a huge carrier of sugar, um, I made that switch. And, you know, you think about what you save over the course of the year, 140 calories and 40 grams of sugar versus, well, ultimately a buy was 18 ounces, two servings. So it was 10 calories and, and, um, and two grams of sugar. But that Delta, that 38 grams per day you save times 365, that's meaningful. And if you can make a slight change like that. Um, and so when I had my first buy, I blown away. Um, I reached out to the founder. Um, uh, and that's around the same time I met Rohan and we started kind of, you know, spending time together and, and thinking about what we could do together and we investing together. And um, it just, I knew that this was something that was going to make a difference. And it's an evolution. It goes from Coke to the, the flavored waters to kombucha to sparkling water um, into, into water. And that palette changes. And so, you know, when we see a trend or we see something coming, uh, we run and we'll do research. You know, collagen is a perfect example. Uh, we invest in a brand called Vital Proteins and collagen has been around for ages. And when uh, we discovered Vital Proteins, we did a ton of um, category work. And so one of the hard parts is when you're going into, when you're trying to go where the puck's going, there's not a lot of consumer feedback that you can really get in terms of collagen. Um, and you know we were lucky, there, there were white papers written on the effects of collagen and what it does. And what we found was that there's you know, legit um, uh, uses for it in terms of joint health. And then there was also this kind of placebo effect uh, it can also help with your hair, skin, and nails. And so for us, you know, we had to make an early bet in a category um, that we thought would catch on. And our thesis was that we think collagen protein can be the new whey protein. It could be a massive, massive category, but we were early on. And so you can find some data, but again, you've got to have that gut and that instinct that you're backing a category creator. And that's what we try to do. We don't always get it. We think we have it and we don't, or the, uh, the fast follower. If you get a category creator, um, you have the advantage of being a category creator, the first mover, the biggest brand, uh, but you also have the challenge of the education. And education was, you know, for vital proteins, um, they had to spend a lot of money and they had to do a lot of education to get the consumer familiar with what collagen is. And that's both the, the blessing and the curse. Um, but when you think of collagen now and you talk about collagen and you mentioned vital proteins, vital proteins, when you think of collagen is kind of the brand that you first think about in, in many minds. And I can't say all minds, but in, in a lot of people's minds, when they think of collagen, they think of vital proteins. Um, and so being that category creator, that first mover, um, a lot of it is gut. I'm not going to lie. We, we have data, but when you're looking at a category that there's not a ton of information on, um, it's got to be through usage. You, you have to talk to other consumers who are using it and do surveys and understand why they're using it. Um, and you have to ultimately say, is this product going to help change people's lives in a meaningful way? 
And if, and if your, your answer is yes, and your gut says yes, and some of the data says yes, then, you take, then we take that leap. You're not always going to be right, um, but we take that leap. And we happen to be right on collagen. Um, the category's expanded. Now, how big can it get from here? I think it can get a lot bigger. But it's now more, you're seeing it in more things. You're seeing it in bars. You're seeing a lot of more kind of nutrition companies using collagen in their products uh, than you did back in 2016. I'm wondering, you talk about some of these factors that, I mean, there's just not enough data out there. How much do you put on the founding team or or the early team within a company? I think that's the most important part. Um, You know, when you... Having a, a, a product that's amazing, sure, right? That that can can go. You can take an amazing product with an average founding team, um, and you can get pretty far. But I think you'll run into challenges. Um, finding a team uh, and a founder or a founding team, um, I would back a better founding team with a worse product than a better product with a little bit less of a founding team. Um, and I say that the only exception too would be if a founder understands what their weaknesses are and wants to win and doesn't care about being right or like wants to win. Um, and they're willing to say, yes, these are my blind spots. I need help here. That, that is huge to us. Um, you know, being a knower that be being kind of a, a learner, not a knower is, is a huge um, attribute that we love to see in, in founders. Um, people who, who are humble, people who are willing to take risks, um, people that um, know where their blind spots are and, and aren't. And it's tough. It's, your, it's, it's the founder's baby. Um, and so founder and team is, is, to us, is even more, more important than the actual product itself. Yeah, when, when they can suspend the ego and say, hey, I do not know these things, you guys can add even more support and, and cover some of their blind spots. You were mentioning, yep. Rohan, your partnership. So you guys yep. are doing some some investing. How does Kavu actually then come to be? Yeah, so um, I always kind of had a, a vision kind of when I was going out there doing deals on my own and, and then I started investing with Rohan and we invested in, in a bunch of companies together. Um, you know, I went to him one day and said, listen, take buy for an example. Buy was, um, a, a brand that I think raised an additional 10 or $15 million. And they went to doctors in New Jersey. And I went to Rohan and I said, if we had a fund, we could have taken that 10 or $15 million round, right. That just went to kind of individual investors in New Jersey um, and the, the thesis was you've, you've, you've been around this company very early. You've been helpful in a lot of ways. Um, the founder and you have a good relationship where you work together and he'll come to you for advice. Um, you know, we don't run the business, right? Um, and Rohan didn't run the business, but it was more of that consigliere to the founder, Ben. And I think that was one of our aha moments of for all, and we know the brand is going like this. Why wouldn't we lever into it? Like and have an ability to lever into it, and that was kind of the first moment of, oh yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Like Roham, especially since he was you know um, had more experience in the industry than I had at the time in consumer brands, a lot more actually. Um, he was around some real amazing juggernauts early, like Vitacoco and Buy and Vitamin Water and even Pop Chips, 
And so to have the ability and all the, that, the education, the mistakes that he's made on his own at Vitamin Water, but then also watch other entrepreneurs make, we thought there was an opportunity there to be able to, to put more money to work behind us if we had kind of an organized fund. Um, the other premise was he saw the secular health and wellness theme as well. Um, I think uh, both of us were fine trying to find a way of this is going to be massive. We think this is going to be a way of life. It's not just going to be a trend. It's at some point in time, every human being, and now it may take a generation to age up for that to happen, but at some point in time, most people are going to be concerned about their health and wellness and understanding like what they put in their body uh, affects a whole variety of things that people didn't know it existed before. Uh, and so we decided, we started talking about a fund. And then um, for us, it was, well, we didn't want to be the other funds. And when we looked around and talked to other founders, two things kept coming up to us. One, it's well, actually three. One, it stopped being fun. So the minute that we took outside money, um, uh, private equity money or venture capital money, it stopped being fun. Two, um, it seemed like when people would take money from venture capital firms or private equity firms, and this is not a, this is a huge generalization, it, was, it, it happened occasionally. Um, they would force more capital than was needed. And the third um, uh, point was they wanted more value from their partners. And, you know, for us, we didn't want to just be the, the boardroom naysayer and then just walk away from the business and, and be disruptive. Uh, we wanted to actually provide value add to all of our partners, along with making it fun, um, being founder friendly, um, but then also, you know, being stage agnostic, right? So we'll put in a check, we'll start a company, we'll found a company, we'll put a check in as small as a million dollars, and we've written a check as high as almost $100 million. So a lot of firms will be very specific on, you got to be at least this in sales, this in EBITDA, and then we'll we'll invest. And we didn't want to force that. If we saw a great idea, a great brand, like why would we prevent ourselves from investing um, and being a part of it because, oh, their revenue wasn't there. Well, it's going to be there in a year or two if we're right. So why not get in now and earlier and help kind of bring about that change? So as Rohan always says, we love to make the news, not just report it. And so we want to roll our sleeves up and we want to help these brands grow in any way we can. And so very early on, um, we focused a ton of resources on value add. Uh, and today we have an internal agency um, that's specific to Kavu that we built internally. Um, and it does everything from creative packaging, uh, package redesign, influencer programs, billboards, um, just the whole 360 activation marketing approach. We have Amazon DTC expertise. Um, we're going to add to it over time. And so anyone we partner with has access to our uncommon agency. Um, and instead of going out and saying, hey, we want to do a packaging, new packaging, well, we're able to go and say, hey, here's what we've done in the past. Here's our work. We're happy to do this for free. Um, or you can go hire an agency if you don't like our work and spend $250,000 or $300,000. And I think what's interesting is combining this value add is really aligned. Because if you go hire an agency and you spend the money, it's very transactional. There's no emotion attached. They're going to come in. They're going to do your packaging job. They'll tell you exactly. They'll listen exactly to what you want. They're not going to push the envelope that much because their, their job is to take the assignment, do the assignment well, and move on. With here, since we're invested and there's an emotional connection and attachment, like we're passionate about um, the packaging redesign and we will push the envelope and we will 
have dialogues with our founders that push the envelope in terms of pushing them a little bit. Because our, our biggest job isn't to run the business. It is to create healthy debate and to cause um, founders to make sure they think about all the potential options. And we love more people uh, around the table that can provide that value and that opinion in terms of pushing the thinking of an entrepreneur. And ultimately that entrepreneur makes a decision, what he or she wants to do, what, what they're, they're gonna go with their gut in the end. And we wanna push that thinking in that envelope because I think that's when you get the best product. I think that's when the best decisions get made. Um, if everyone just agrees and goes along with it, I don't think you necessarily get to the best decision or the best outcome necessarily. Um, and so I think having this value add um, is, is a huge differentiation for us. It's part of our DNA. It's our North Star. Um, and I think aligning that uh, with passion. Um, you know, our whole firm is, Rohan and I's biggest bond is we love what we do and we're both passionate about it. It's very rare that you find a, a partnership where you're both equally as passionate about what you do. And especially in private equity and venture capital, um, this is not to say all, because there are a lot of passionate people out there who are running funds who are involved in, in funds out there. But a lot of people kind of go the model of go to a, a great college, go into investment banking. Investment banking leads to their first private equity venture capital job, and they kind of work up their, their route. And I question sometimes, is that person really passionate about what they're doing? Or are they, be, are they there because that's just the path they follow at that time? And it, it, maybe it was like me when I was younger and saying, oh, I want to go to a place where I can make money. And so that's what I think really differentiates us is that when we meet a new founder or brand, we're passionate about it. Like we like the energy that, that we bring, if we're excited about something, um, it really is one of the difference makers in terms of, uh, I think it's been critical to any success we've had um, to the to the partnership that Rohan and I have, and to the people that we look to bring into Kavu, we all look for people who are passionate and love what they're doing um, or want to be a part of. You know, you know, our our motto is to democratize healthy living for all humans. We want people who who buy into that and want to be a part of that journey. And we actually should change that motto to uh, all creatures because we invest in in pet as well. Uh, we've made two pet investments, but uh, that that's kind of our. Our, our mission, our North Star. Well, I think it, the competitive advantage for Kavu has become a lot clearer. Like you, you can see how much value you guys add and the differentiation, such as being stage agnostic, how important that is, how much that adds for you guys. W one thing I, I love that you were talking about was creating that healthy debate. I'm obsessive of around judgment, decision-making. I'm wondering for you, where do you see the most internal struggle with companies that you add the most value around decision-making specifically? Uh, with companies who are looking to make difficult decisions and where do they struggle with that? Yeah. Listen, I think it's a balance. I think um, having too many cooks in the kitchen is not is not great because I think you could get very differing views and it could cause a lot of confusion and you know paralysis by analysis a little bit. Um, listen, I think change is hard. Uh, it's, it goes back to the analogy of or working on a weakness, like working on my backhand when I was a kid, like. Yes, I chose tennis as my worst sport, um, and I was, and it was humbling. Um, and I think that that trait carried with me today. Um, when I have success or I fail, I, I kind of like I've, I've been there before in terms of um, in terms of that experience. I think founders, just like anyone else in life, I think it's when you you're, you're making a, a radical change. Either you're you're you have to change your business for some reason, or, or some innovation didn't work, um, or 
you know, you want to change your packaging. You know, that's a perfect example. Um, there was a brand we invested in called One Bar. Uh, and at the time, um, if you look at the old One Bar packaging, um, you know, the company had been around for a long time. Uh, the founder, Ron, was, is a great guy. Um, and he had created bars previously. And then it wasn't until probably 2015, he kind of launched this product called the One Bar. And the One Bar um, like went like this in the specialty channel, and gyms and, and GNC, it was re- and we noticed it. And then we tasted the product and it was we were blown away. The problem was, it goes back to the earlier analogy, the packaging was more of a Ford on the outside and it had a Ferrari in the inside. But a lot of people, and the, and the business was doing so well with that packaging, despite it, I should say, um, you know, we, um, when we invested and, you know, we, um, and I give Ron a lot of credit. There's, there's two major things I think really helped that business. You had to have an amazing founder story and, 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 and Ron, where he loved to spend his time was on making bars. He loved the innovation piece of it. You know, I don't know how much he actually loved running the day to day. And so uh, when we invested in one bar, um, we helped find a, a great management team, a, a guy named Peter Burns, uh, who had run um, Justin's and some other businesses in, in the past and, and a very great operator. And we also talked to kind of the, the founder about, we also need to change your packaging and we think you should change your packaging. And he was completely open to it. Um, and again, we always have these conversations before we invest um, to say, hey, this is kind of our thinking. Are you aligned? Because I think you have to have those transparent, honest conversations. Because what you don't want to do is getting into a, a financial marriage, so to speak, is is a lot harder to, to to exit than you know, I guess, a real life marriage. Unfortunately, right? It's 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 a lot easier, I guess, to go say, okay, sorry, it's not working. We'll see if divorce. And a financial kind of arrangement, I guess, and when you're working together, and um, you know, founders raise money, it's a lot harder to say, okay, well it's not working. How do we, you know, end this? Right. And so our biggest thing is we have these conversations with our founders and partners early on to say, okay, what's your vision? How can we help in that? Where, where are your biggest pain points? And we make sure we're aligned on, well, this is what we think we would probably do. And, and you get alignment up front. It makes it a lot easier and smoother of a ride because those are things that you discussed and talked about. Now those may change and that's okay. Right. If, if you say, Hey, you listen, I actually think we don't need this anymore. And then that's good. Okay, awesome. But um, in in one bar, that was a company that having great success, but needed new packaging. And so um, Ron was aligned, and we we internally did that. And I give um, Stevie Clements, who who works on our own common team, and also uh, Andrew Haynes. You know, they did the repackaging for for one bar. If you look at the before and after, and so I remember when we showed it to Ron, it was a radical change. It wasn't an evolution where it's like, ah, oh, tweak here, you tweak this, the color gradient. No, it was a radical change. And the founder, I could, we could see it. He froze a little bit. And I would too. It's, it's his baby. He's, he's put his blood, sweat, and tears into this business. And it's like, oh my gosh, what if I change this packaging and it doesn't work and, and the business goes like this, right? And, and so I think sometimes founders have a hard time. And I, it's understandable. It's, it's change. Change is hard. No one wakes up and says, I want to change my routine today, or I want to change what I, what I do for a living. Like, you don't, change is hard. And I think um, the ones that um, are able to, willing to take those calculated risks to, to make those changes um, could be the step change to the business. And with one bar, that was a rocket booster for the company. We launched that new packaging. We changed the name to just one brand. So it could be a platform with everything with one gram of sugar. 
uh, and the brand went like that, exploded. And so I think decision-making, again, to land the plane, comes down to when there's really difficult changes for the founder to make for the business that if they're right, could be a huge step change in a really positive way. But it's scary. You don't know if it's going to work or not. Um, and that's typically where we see a little bit of um, hesitation um, or um, trepidation in terms of changing things up a little bit. And in some cases, you don't have to. You know, sometimes you don't have to make some radical changes. But in that case, we, we thought we needed to make more of a radical one versus a, a tweak here or a tweak there. Because if it's working, you don't want to you don't want to break it. Um, so that's kind of in some decision making. I think founders sometimes struggle with. No, no, no. That's that's deeply insightful. And to stick with the, the landing the plane analogy, I, I know we're we're coming down here shortly. I, I am curious though. Uh, we're kind of talking about other founders you worked with. What about for you? What do you think you were just spending too much time on earlier in your career that as you advanced, you realized you know what th- this was a total waste. I could reallocate my focus elsewhere. That's a great question. Um, I, well, for me personally, I think um, I was way too involved in the in the data, like playing to my my strengths and or my weakness, like using my weaknesses a little bit too much more than my strengths. And what I mean by that is, um, I find myself sometimes. Um, getting bogged down in areas of um, kind of vu that I'm probably not as good at. Um, but um, it's just been that way because when you started the firm, you didn't start with much. It was, okay, like, here we go, right? And you're on your own and you, then you hire a couple, you make a couple hires and then you add to it. So it's, it's probably um, hiring great people around you and giving them the ability to run. And I think um, earlier on, um, I probably was a little less, because again, it goes back to that founder analogy of, you know, letting go a little bit and allowing people who are actually smarter than you um, run the play. And so if I look at myself today versus five, seven, 10 years ago, it's, you don't have to do it all by yourself. You have a team and it's letting your team run the play and trusting in them that they're going to run it and they're going to run it better than you. And I think focusing on your strengths, um, spending the time in areas that you're actually good at um, is one thing I would have changed up. And I've done that. I, I spent a good chunk of my time on, on things that I'm, that I'm good at versus spending time on things that I'm not good at. And quite frankly, if you're not good at something, you're probably likely you're not passionate about it, that piece of that business. And so it, it makes sense that you know, there's, there's probably gonna be limited growth there. Um, and I think hiring has been, um, in terms of just, uh, what I underestimated when, when I started Kavu was just the impact, um, you know, of being a leader and being responsible in a lot of ways, uh, for the career development. That is something that I spent a ton of time on and I probably underestimated how much time I would need to spend on it. And also how much I, I care. Like I always knew I care about my team, but you know, it's almost like being a parent. You're a parent. It's like, if my son has a bad day, I have a hard time sleeping. And it's the same thing when you're running your own business. And, and you know, it's like if, if so-and-so is either struggling with something or it's like, it affects me just like it affects me when my, when my children has a bad day and I'm like, oh my gosh, what can I do to fix that? Um, and so the, the mental, um, 
time spent because all these people, I want them all who work on our team, they're family. And when they're not with their own family, they're spending more time in this family. And that's a, a very huge responsibility that I think I underestimated, um, but it's an important one. It's something that, um, you know, was, was to me was um, one of my biggest underestimations before going into it what didn't I know type of thing. Yeah, I'm right there with you. That mental time spent in terms of the other people on your team, it, it's true. You, you view them like like your kids, your family. Um, it, it really it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy for that. I love you also hitting on strength, gets built on strength there. Uh, when, when you're attacking your weaknesses, you might be going up incremental percentage points. If you want a 10, 100X, you've got to be going after your strength. So I think that's such a great point. I, I know we're going to round it out here. I would love to know what's next for you and both Kavu. What, what's like really at the top of the mind right now for you guys? Yeah, I it's I've probably never been more um, energized and excited um, in terms of where the world's going. Uh, you know, listen, we started Kavu with a primary focus on food and beverage, and we still work in food and beverage and love food and beverage, and we're going to make many more investments in food and beverage. Um, but what's ch- changed is. It starts with what you put in your body, as we talked about, and then it goes to, okay, well, what do you put on your body? So skin, shampoo. So, you know, personal care and beauty are, are several years behind food. Uh, strategics in those categories now are, are wide awake that they need, that some of their brands aren't resonating with today's millennial or Gen Z consumer, as we call them, Gen Zennials, um, and that there needs to be a better focus on transparency, on sustainability, on ingredients. Um, and you have to have efficacy as well. So I think it goes with Kavu's gone from what you put in your body to what you put on your body. And then I think COVID has helped accelerate. And you look at, you know, the people who unfortunately got really sick or, or, or died during COVID. Um, outside of age, obesity was the number uh, two cause of, you know, common links. And so I think there is a hyper focus on health and wellness now. I think people, if they weren't there before, have started to realize, oh my gosh, like, my weight could, could affect my health more. Um, you know, um, and so I think there has been a massive shift again, where I think we've moved it along here even more, where now more and more consumers are aware of health and wellness and they want to make it more part of their life. And so we're looking at things in human performance. Um, you know, we invested in a brand called whoop, um, and, you know, tracking sleep. I mean, think about that, for example, right? We focus so much time on, um, you know, there's always old sayings that grind, 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 sleep is for the week. You know, you sh- I can go on three hours or four hours of sleep. And what we found out now is that it's actually the opposite. Like if you don't have optimal sleep, there's three pillars of health, right? It's sleep is kind of the, the main foundation. And then it's kind of like food, nutrition, and exercise on top. If your sleep is off, it's going to affect your nutrition because you're going to be more prone to sugary uh, foods and, and carbohydrates. Um, and your per- exercise performance, obviously, you can like that's going to be off as well. And so, and you feel it. And so, I'm excited about human performance. Um, being able to track, I mean, just from a whoop alone, you look at your respiratory rate, your, your resting heart rate, um, your sleep, how much REM sleep you're getting. So, I think we're only scratching the surface. I think. More and more people, if you are going to truly, the personalization of not only nutrition um, is coming, where it's not just a generic fill out this five person, you know, five question survey and we'll send you some vitamins. You know, it's ultimately actually doing lab work where you can almost do lab work in your home, 
take those results and have them translate into what foods you should and shouldn't be eating from an allergy perspective and also just, you know, cholesterol and all these different factors. Um, and then tying that together with, well, how much sleep are you getting? And tying that together with, um, well, what's your exercise look like? And so I do feel that there's going to be this 360 health and wellness platform coming where it ties in sleep, it ties in exercise, it ties in nutrition. Um, and I couldn't be more excited about kind of that. And so for us, you know, it's been an evolution. Health and wellness has evolved and we have to evolve with it because before it was more of a focus on food, but now we're realizing there's all the, all the things out there like exercise, now sleep, mental aspect is huge to health, not just the physical. So couldn't be more excited. Um, again, as you go into any new category, um, you know, we don't just dive in head first. Um, you know, we spent four years uh, studying and understanding beauty, right? To get that edge, to meet a bunch of founders, to understand how those channels work and how they may differ for food and beverage. But what's holistically common is we're building consumer brands that have to resonate with people. And I think our greatest skill set is identifying trends early, finding great, amazing category creators with great founders, and then being able to amplify those voices um, and those brands to be kind of the leader in, in their respective categories. Oh, I absolutely love it. You, you talk about great founders as well. You're mentioning the Whoop. I think it was back in 2018, maybe episode 102, 103, we had Will Ahmed from Whoop on. You, you wanna dive in, into someone's mindset. Yeah. Um, that, that was a great episode with him. Final one here, Brett, you know how much I respect you. I, I could do this all day with you, but I would love to know if you were doing something like this similar um, with someone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love having just a long form conversation with? If I could have a conversation with anyone, mm -hmm. alive or dead. Honestly, I'm going to take a, maybe a cheesy answer here. I'm going to say my grandfather. I would love to, I, my only regret was I wish, and he was such an impactful part of my life. And I've talked to him a lot about on, on this, on this um, talk here. Um, I'd love to be able to, the grown up version of the adult version to be able to have some more insightful conversations on um, like how he did it, how he made it. Um, some of the things that he valued. Now I saw a lot of it as a young kid, um, but I'd love to be able to sit and have a conversation with him today. Um, and having gone through what I've gone through and the experiences I've gone through. And so that would be, that would, I'd love to have one more conversation with my grandfather. That's awesome. Brett, you're the man. I appreciate this. This is a lot oh, of fun. Yeah. It was awesome. Cool. Thank you for having me and, uh, we'll do it again soon. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.